saw a few Christian leaders making some public endorsements of politicians and issues on the upcoming election. I want to talk about that and some remarkable polling. We'll do that and more on this week's Corey Truax Show. Right before I turned on this microphone, I had three or four things I was going to try to lump together, but I feel like I made a mess of that here recently on the show, and so I'm going to keep them separate and just make lots of points today, because there's actually way more than just that preview I just gave you. There's a lot more I want to do on the show today as well. Welcome to the Corey Jurek Show, wherever you find podcasts. I'm glad you're here. You can find me lots of places, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or threads. Look for Corey Truax. You can also contact me at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. And at least most Sundays at 1030 on Sunday mornings, you can find me at Beachwood Church, where the awesome people of Beachwood Beachwood Church gather for word and worship and sacraments. We have a good time together. If you are without a church home, you're invited out. We'd love to have you any given Sunday morning. I had to miss, not had to, I missed this week. Me and my wife went down to Charleston for a few days, a phenomenal city, to celebrate our one-year wedding anniversary. I thought I'd come to the mic this week with a reflection on that. I might do it next week. Uh, this is just now personal or point of personal privilege. Maybe you call it point of personal indulgence. I wrote a song for our wedding that my wife has been asking me for now one full year to record. And I figured out how to do it. It is um, not the highest quality. Also, uh, the, the verse and the, the chorus are not in the same tempo. It's not even close, really. Uh, but she loves it. I love it. It's out there on, her, uh, on my social if you want to go listen to a little two-minute song I wrote. I, do, I admit this. I love I love the song I wrote. I've written a lot in my life because I was in a band. It, up until this point, my favorite thing I'd ever written was something I wrote for my, my boys, my nephews. Um, that still, when it happens to come up, it can get me in my feelings, not because I am a particularly compelling writer, but because music is manipulative when it's in the right chord pattern and because I love those kids. Well, now they're young men. Uh, but anyway, it's out there if you want to do it. Maybe I'll have a reflection on marriage next week. Now, all right, here's where I want to start. There is... In the the parts of Christian social media that I run, there is often, not often, there's a recent discussion on the concept of nuance, on what, when and whether it's wise to emphasize all the exceptions to a given thing you're saying. That when preaching on divorce, do you need to quickly run to all the exceptions or just preach preach the standard? That when sta- saying in public uh, a, a given uh, a given stance, is it also important then to start giving all the nuances or just let it sit, let it sit and if it offends people, it offends people. I'll just give you another one on on divorce in particular was one I was seeing. Do you just toss out there the standard on divorce and then do- and then don't recognize your audience is probably over half the people are reading it are divorced, and they're going to get just bludgeoned by it. And you might want to come back around. You might want to, in the same sentence, talk about grace while you're just laying out the law. There's some discussion about nuance and how we communicate. You probably pick up from me. I'm a huge, huge fan of the nuance of when I com- when I'm communicating. I want to I want to think. I shouldn't say first. I need to to drill down on that. I was going to say think first about my audience. We shouldn't. We should first think about the Lord. And we want to honor him with everything we say. The second thing that I do think about, though, is my audience. Who am I talking to? And I I don't want to say things for me. 
I don't want to say things that satisfy me at all. I want to say things in a way that's most likely to change their mind, change change their their disciplines, their let's go with affections. I'm thinking about them and how they'll hear it, not how I want to say it. Because I think I probably do have a preference to say some things differently than I do, but I like thinking, at least strategically, about the audience I'm talking to, and so therefore that will be different. My uh, my audience will be different when I'm talking to all men versus a mixed group. My audience will be, excuse me, my tone or my content might be different. Certainly would be in a conference setting versus a church setting, or uh, I, there's lots of different examples you can give. So the discussion has been on nuance and how valuable it is, and I will... Uh, for I want to I want to interact with an example of this that I think catches my opponents in a contradiction. So my opponents in this inside Christianity brothers would just say, just say it, say what it is, let it sit. So that's their principle. And here's another thing you need to know: a lot of these people don't like one of my favorite preachers of all time, Tim Keller. They th- think he was a really weak and. Uh, some kind of somehow lacked courage or something. They don't like him. They thought he was overly nuanced. And I, I saw this week resurfaced something that I criticized Tim Keller for myself. These these people who criticize nuance like crazy and don't like Tim Keller were resurfacing a tweet he made a few years ago, where uh, there was a video clip of Stephen Colbert. Is his name? He goes like Colbert for whatever dumb reason. Stephen Colbert, CBS Late Show host, was interviewing Olivia Rodrigo, the singer. She brings up his faith. He's a Catholic. And he does do, for a false faith, a very good job of representing it. For a false faith, a false version of Christianity, a a pretty good job of, I would use the word winsome, some people hate that word, winsomely talking about the resources that, that the faith offers. And Keller, very short tweet, just says, this is a good example of what evangelism in the workplace or evangelism in public might look like. And I, I criticized him at the, at the time because Stephen Colbert is, one, not a Christian, and two, he promotes very unchristian things. You know what that tweet needed? It needed nuance. It needed all of the qualifiers. It needed the qualifier, Stephen Colbert is not a believer. Stephen Colbert is an anti-believer. He's anti-Bible. He supports a lot of things that are unchristian. Now, now with those qualifiers, he's not a Christian, and he is not someone to follow for any kind of doctrine. Do you hear his tone here? Do you hear how he's he is offering a solution to some dark thing Olivia Rodrigo said that's not flippant, but it is it's bright, it's appealing. I want to toss that out there into the nuance conversation. One of the things you criticized Tim Keller for, you were, you were right. You know what he needed? Nuance. He would have been much more effective if he would have been nuanced in that tweet. And you, who hate it so much, you would be too. You'd often be much more effective if you just... You know, uh, if, another example, we live in a time of, absolutely, of absolute parental wreckage. And when we make an important and true point about the wreckage it causes young people to grow up without a dad. Sometimes we need to recognize, I don't know, half the people listening to you didn't have one, that there's kids in the room that don't have one. 
And so while we're going to thunder against single motherhood because it's damaging to children, it's damaging to mothers, we then recognize, hey, you've got hope. Okay, you've got what what's what happened here is not ideal. There was sin here. Sin happened to get us in this situation, but there's hope. There are fathers to be had. It's just adding some nuance, adding some some elements to make it full and not just always saying, right, single motherhood, sin happened, repent. Right. That's important. Not but, but and and here's some other things the room might need to know. So I might be in a effective communicator and not send you off a deep end of spiraling thoughts about how how much of a disaster your eight-year-old is going to be because he doesn't have a dad and instead do both things call out the sin and then add in elements to make it a, a full truth all right that's what i wanted to say on the nuance discussion now that got me into um thinking about another let's call it controversy that i've been dealing with i want to give you a quote now from tim keller I was writing, we were writing back from Charleston, uh, me and my wife, we listened to a, a Tim Keller sermon on the way, because she knows what I love, and I he made this statement in 1991 in New York City, I'm just going to play it for you, and I'll have comments afterwards, but let me just give you that category. The category is that discussion about the Christian's role in relation to governments, the Christian's role in relation to the state, it also has things about Christian's role related to other individuals. But keep in mind that that context of preachers talking about the Christian's relationship to governments. Here's uh, Pastor Tim Keller, Pastor Verdeem Moretz Presbyterian, now passed. This is back in 1991. See, for example, uh, in communist uh, countries, the church has always been considered radically subversive. Why? Be- uh, because it's subversive. The communist state is very conservative, and the church was something that it tried to deal with. It was subversive because the church has always questioned, or always, not just questioned, has always challenged the idea that the state is the final arbiter of uh, moral issues and values. He didn't use the word conservative correctly right there, but what he means is uh, power kept institutionally. And the Christian, if they live in communism, they are there declaring, they're challenging, you guys in the government, you don't get to tell us what right and wrong is. God says what right and wrong is. And the church has always said the state is not the final author and, and arbiter of moral values. It's God. And so in those countries where you have super conservative uh, uh, state governments and the state, the, the church looks radically subversive. But in this country, for example, very often Christianity looks reactionary and conservative. You know why? Because in this country... The church is also challenging the idea that the individual is the final uh, arbiter of moral values. So as a side note, that's a really good, insightful point. The Christian both says to governments, you're not in charge here. You don't get to determine what's right. Well, you are in charge here. They have legitimate authority. God gives authority. But you're not arbiter of right and wrong. And then we say to the individual, you're not the arbiter of right and wrong. Your feelings, your instincts don't tell us what right and wrong is. God does. And so if your feelings tell you to do anything outside of God's law, you're wrong. Your appetites, your desires aren't naturally good. They don't tell us anything about whether that's right or wrong. Only God decides. That's a great point, by the way. I, I bring that one up for this reason. I, I would argue that preaching was theonomy. What he, in part, just said that the Christian has a role in saying, 
government, you don't get to determine what right and wrong is. We are subversive in that way. God does. And so we pursue godly things. This is where that question comes up often. By what standard? What we're saying, the godly standard. We, we want good laws by godly standard. I am saying that communication of theonomy is a lot more effective than the one we're getting. That is muscular and boisterous and aggressive, caustic. That's a really good way to talk about theonomy. So just wanted to play that quote. I thought that was also, uh, the, uh, in some ways, defense of, of Keller at postmortem. He wasn't wasn't that much of a coward saying saying in 1991, and he he would say that later as the gay marriage stuff comes up in his own church. He he didn't he did not shy away from those things when you got to say stuff that the culture doesn't like. In a second, I want to continue that discussion of basically of politics from the pulpit because I saw some things in my Twitter feed of Christian leaders making some endorsements because there's some elections coming up, and I had just a couple thoughts on that. You have noticed, I'm sure, over the last. Now a couple years, that idea of theonomy and bringing biblical law and the thinking that the Bible has on laws into the modern world. We've been talking about that a good bit, and those things are often weird. Uh, we talk about a lot of them on, on the show. I would just highlight there, there's laws in the Bible about your how you how you burn basically burn brush or burn things on your field and how liable you might be if you get irresponsible and you end up burning someone else's field well i suspect that has not happened to you lately where someone else's burning of a field has affected you directly but the the analog the modern day analog might have happened to you which means someone's negligence or someone's bad decisions that would be maybe you got hurt at work or got hurt in a car accident that might have happened to you and those things are serious. Medical bill, bills start to pile up. You can't go to work. You're losing those wages. And while you're just trying to recover, you're stressing about all those things, you're also trying to navigate the process of getting justice and to make it right. I know it's intimidating. I don't want you to be scared by it. There are people who can help you. And that's why I want to introduce you to Samuel Harms. He's a personal friend of mine, attorney at law here in Greenville. You can Google him. It's stay out. Excuse me. You can Google him. It's Samuel Harms, H-A-R-M-S, as in stay out of harm's way. His number is 864-666-6666. That's Samuel Harms, attorney at law. For real, don't, don't be intimidated by these things. Get in touch with him and see if he can help. It's 33 Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. The number is 666-6666. Uh, so if you have been hurt by someone's negligent burning of a field or the modern-day equivalent of getting hurt at work or in a car accident, give Samuel Harms a call today, 864-666-6666. So I was thinking about politics in the pulpit because I first saw Al Mohler, who I – he's the president of Southeastern Seminary, by the way, in Louisville, Kentucky. Huge fan of Al Mohler, like him a lot. I think he's one of the brightest lights in American Christianity – he is a treasure. I, I love Al Mohler. And so I was scrolling and saw he endorsed, he's putting out an actual f- formal endorsement of the Republican governor for candidate there. I believe his name is Daniel Cameron or Cam- Cameron Daniels. It's one of those configurations. And who is running against the incumbent Democrat Kentucky guy named Gary Bashir or something Bashir. And so for a minute, I had to stop and went, huh, I wonder how, what do I think about that? Christian leaders publicly endorsing candidates. And I, I can certainly take, I won't say the word correction, but I would take other people's ideas on this. I immediately didn't like the idea of a pastor doing it, especially from a pulpit, getting up and using time from the scriptures to endorse a candidate. 
my fear is that that's that's a part how we got to where we are as the church that there was there were decades of a whole lot of very literal scriptural intensity and depth and there was a whole lot of here's what I heard on Rush Limbaugh this week so let's talk about the ACLU and how bad Bill Clinton is and that kind of sh- shallowness I think is in part how we got here that there was politicking from the pulpit instead of good ex a good exegesis of from of the scripture just getting into the scriptures because if you do that it will inform politics but when you start at the surface level just what's in the news you got you're you're going to create problems so i'm not a fan of from the pulpit endorsement politicking i think it's unwise the al Mohler thing makes a lot of sense to me he's a christian leader he's a christian thought leader he's not preaching he's on his, his own social media making a statement for a candidate that I think he could make some good. He, even his tone was good. It was just an encouragement, not binding consciences. Because there, there might be other Christian out there that says, I, I, think, these legit, I think these are very legitimate. legitimate. That they, they just hate both parties, and they just stay out of it. I think that's a legitimate position to have, or as long as that person is also doing other work in the civic order, thinking that there's a, a 100-year plan that doesn't involve these two parties. So while the, I don't think the pulpit is appropriate, there's a good argument here for a Christian thought leader. And here's another one I, f- I found that I thought was good. I'm trying to give you, I think here, good and bad. What are good ways pastors, Christian leaders can interact versus, I think, unwise ways? I think the unwise ways is turning, turning preaching hour into politics hour. One of the unwise ways is not going out there with I told you I was going to, at the beginning, try to mold all these together, is going out and not being nuanced in how you discuss things. But uh, there's another pastor I follow because I'm now into this post-mill theonomy world. He's a pastor in somewhere in Ohio. He has a book out right now called It's Good to Be a Man. I think, I suspect I should read that. It sounds like there's a lot of good stuff in there. In any event, he made a statement before his sermon Sunday. Very short. He put the statement out there that encouraged his people to go vote against this constitutional amendment in Ohio, which will be voted on, as I'm talking to you, tomorrow. Uh, this I'm recording on Monday, November the 6th. On November the 7th, Ohio will vote on whether or not to put abortion, basically up until birth, in their constitution. And so he basically says if um, Jonathan was a, pr- was a prophetic voice to King David— and if John the Baptist was preaching against adultery directly to Herod's face, then we as believers have our role to say to our government here with our vote, we don't want to see the slaughter of children. So I'm, I am encouraging you, go vote. No on this amendment. Again, because that's not a politician. It's not a party. It's an issue. There's some real safety in that. I had, if anyone was going to have a problem with that kind of stuff, it would probably be me. And I just couldn't find any fault in it. It seemed wise. It had, it had the right tone. It was not commanding. It was just like, here, here's some biblical basis for what Christians do to governments and how we speak prophetically. And so here's, here's how to handle it. So uh, there you go. That's, all I, that's all, really all I wanted to do. Preachers and politics, politics from the pulpit, and try to give you some examples of what works and what doesn't. Again, I think what Keller said there was political in nature. It's letting the principle then inform your politics. Keller saying, the church is subversive because we will say to governments, you don't decide what's right, what's right and what's wrong. God does. 
So you, then you don't have to get into really thorny and needlessly partisan things. You just go, all right, well, the church has authority to speak up to the government and, and ask it to be, command it to be, I guess command's not the right word, tell, tell them God's ways. Not to do little meaningless partisan garbage when they get up to preach. All right, here's what I want to do. Now, we, since we're in a little bit on politics, I got I to gotta do this. This is... It's blowing me away. So I, I pay my New York Times subscription fee. I think it's like 15 bucks a month or something, and I get lots of stuff from them, a lot of the behind-the-paywall things, even more of their games. You know, they do the Connections game and Wordle. Those are free games. There's other games behind the paywall. They're smart. It's fun. Anyway, they are not the best poller. They work with Siena College on doing polls, but they're they're a top five in accuracy if you judge them over the last six or seven cycles. Their polling they just released is, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I can't think of a word. It's it's profoundly crazy. What they find is that if the election were held today, that Donald Trump would be leading the president, President Biden, by the following margins of the following states: Nevada up by ten, Arizona up by five, Pennsylvania up by four. Georgia up by six, Michigan up by five, and Wisconsin down by two. I don't. It, it's hard to believe that the margins were so very different just two years ago in those states, where he didn't lose those states by much. He lost those states often by less than a percentage point. But these are gigantic numbers. In Nevada, it's particularly weird because it's it's at fifty two percent. Like he's he actually has the number fifty two. Uh, I've been doing this a long time. In this part of a, a presidential polling cycle, it's not odd for a challenger or the incumbent to be up by these margins, but usually it is uh, someone being up uh, 46 to 42. And so it's a four-point margin. Someone's up, and that's what Trump is mostly. In most of these states, he's up 48 to 43, like he is in Michigan. So not at the 50, not at the 50% mark telling you so some chunk of people just said, neither, I don't like either, I'm not, I'm not doing it. So two, two points I want to make about this. One, it is remarkable that a, I don't know, 191, whatever it is, indicted former president who was defeated is now polling so strongly in these, uh, in these swing states. It's weird. It's, as a watcher of history, just not something that's ever happened. But then second, I would also call this damaging. Because I, 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 looked, I look at the crosstabs on this, and what's happened is voters under 40 and minority voters are saying, no, no Biden. They're not saying Trump. They're saying no Biden. And I'm just telling you, I, I, I can't see it. I can't see them staying home in big enough numbers. I could be wrong. I think the Trump hatred is so intense that those people show up and vote against him. I think. I, I think that's the case. I could be, I could be wrong. It's one of the weirdest things about him. He is the most unique figure in my life. He drives turnout like, like he drives turnout to polling places like Taylor Swift drives turnout to stadiums. People just can't stay away because they love him or they hate him. They just gotta go. So I find it remarkable, but I also find it damaging because I don't know about you, but here's what I get in the mail almost every day from various organizations because we're in South Carolina. We're an early primary state. I get mail almost every day, giant postcards telling me, do you want to defeat Biden? You could only defeat Biden by 
giving up on Trump or something like that. It's uh, drop Trump to beat Biden. So voters are getting pounded with the message. I think the correct message, if you value winning, if you're on the right and you value winning, you need to not vote for, for Donald Trump. He will lose. And he'll lose you the Senate. He'll lose you the House. It's all he's done. He, he won 2016 in a freak situation. And then all he's done since then is lose, 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 lose. He's going to keep losing. you got to stay away from him if you want to lose. And that's the argument that the two now top tra- challengers to him, DeSantis and Haley, are trying to make. Like, by the way, in this poll that Trump is winning, the person who's the only person polling better against Biden is Nikki Haley. She's polling way ahead. Like she's killing Biden in most of these states. That would be, seems like she would just, uh, what's the word? She would just uh, soar to victory if she happened to be the nominee. But this polling hurts their cause. Because their their argument is you can't win, and all he's got to do is say yes, I can. Look at the New York Times polls. I'm up by a lot. He said that he'd say that if he were down by twenty, he'd say he's up by a lot. But he's he can actually say it now, and it's true, and it's weird, and, and so it's both things. It's remarkable. It's also damaging, I think, in in the long run. All right, two more things, and we'll call it a day. One. This is uh, let's call these next two stories the category of. Things of interest overseas. We'll start with Africa. New York Times published last week a study that showed when I was born in 86, so they actually did it in 85, but in 1985, 8% of the world's population lived on the continent of Africa. In 2050, so what are we at? 25 years from now, not long. I'll still be in relative good health. Most of my listeners will still be around. In 2050, one quarter of the globe's population will live on the continent of Africa. And it's not because a bunch of people are moving there. It's because the fertility rates are much higher, and the West is imploding on itself. We just didn't have any kids, and so we have a much smaller share of the world's population. You're starting to see that now in China as well. A slowdown of that gigantic population. India recently overtook them. That should then ask us if we are strategic thinkers what are we what are we going to do with by we i mean the church christians what are we going to do with a very african world as opposed to a world that's very western well africa's an odd spot in that islam thrives there in some parts and so does christianity one of the issues is that christianity the version of christianity that thrives there is often charismatic in nature it is not is I would say not serious theologically. I should mention and and ask prayers for my dad. He is in. Oh man, where is he? Kenya, Nigeria. I forgot where he went, but he is there teaching for a couple weeks. I think like pastors and preachers like training, because what has happened, the Lord has been good to make converts. But their version of Christianity will end up being, if this growth pattern proves true, their version of Christianity will be the dominant one in the world. Which should ask, should be a question to us, then what's our strategy on not just making converts on the continent of Africa, but then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you? Right now there's been great work in go therefore and preach the gospel of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They have been made converts. But now we need to teach them good doctrine. The, uh, what's his name? Vody Bakum? Vody Bakum, I'm almost positive, moved out of the United States to head up a Bible college or a university of some sort 
in some country on the continent of Africa for this purpose. I think it's something for conventions, Presbyterian Church, and the the Baptist for us to start thinking. What resources do we have? Our, our resources are sort of vast. Could we repurpose? Like even here, about to Baptist people don't don't freak out. I noticed that there is inside the Southern Baptist Convention a lot of skepticism over one of our organizations called the North America Mission. Uh, what what's that called? NAM North American Missions. I forgot N A M B. I don't know what the B stands for. The North American Missions Baptist. Who cares what it stands for? The point is they plant churches, and it seems like many Baptists are not happy with some of the processes for vetting leaders and who you partner with, who you fund, and all that. All right, well, it's it's a gigantic line item. We also have the IMB that does already go overseas. Maybe even about priority here. We we talk about making converts all the time. Is it now time to start pitching to our churches, we need more funds from you, not to send convert makers overseas, but to send our seminary professors. Not to keep, we have whatever it is here, six, seven Southern Baptist seminaries. We have the, the seminary system here. To not start to, to stock those classrooms with seminarians, but to send them overseas, to get them language training to teach the next generation. Now, someone who I think has already started on this, John MacArthur's group out in California are already on this with something called Master's Seminary International, I think it's called, where they send people overseas to teach in, teach in those languages, those pastors. But you know what that means? is that the charismatics are making converts and they're teaching their theology. And then John MacArthur, who we're much more closely aligned with, the Master Seminary, they're teaching a lot of theology. Like I'm now not worried, but I'm zealous. I'm zealous for a movement. I want to be part of one. I want to even change my financial plan to give to, be a part of something that is educating this growing part of the world in Reformed theology and covenant theology and out of the sh- the madness that comes out of some other movements. So I don't have anything for you on a plan more than just a call for strategy and to be a voice in your own churches, to be a voice in your own denominations. I have enough people who listen that are actual church leaders to, to say that to you guys. What can we do? What, what things already exist that we can fund to create biblical education overseas? Because the Lord's been generous to us, has he not? we got all kinds of biblical education over here. What can we share with young converts in Africa to, to see to it that they come up with good theology? All right, final thing for me. The headline is from the New York Times. A campaign in the Philippines that frames divorce as a basic human right is gaining momentum despite systemic and religious barriers. So did you even know that? Did you know it was illegal, basically, in the Philippines to get a divorce? I want to read to you just two paragraphs from the story that I find profound because my entire life, 37 years of life, divorce is just super normal, super easy to get. I lived only in a world of no-fault divorce laws, but there are apparently places in the world that do that put enough value on marriage and what it means for children in the next generation that they have laws around it, making it hard to just get rid of your wife, get rid of your husband. Two paragraphs. Quote, Divorce has a complicated history in the Philippines. During the Spanish colonial era, 
divorce, sorry, Spanish colonial era, divorce was banned, but legal separation was allowed under very narrow conditions. Under American occupation, it was made legal to divorce, but only on the grounds of adultery or concubinage. So when the Spanish Catholics, basically, were in charge, no divorce. When Americans come along say, yeah, okay, divorce, but only because of adultery or because you're a concubine. The Japanese, who occupied the Philippines during World War II, expanded the divorce law, allowing more grounds for people to seek divorce. So the, J- the J- Japanese come along and say, okay, so here's some more divorces. Then, next paragraph, that changed after the enactment of the country's civil code in 1950. Muslim citizens who make up 5% of the population are allowed to divorce because in 1977, Ferdinand Marcos, the president at the time, signed legislation allowing it. And so they even have, apparently, some divorce laws based on your religion. I bring that up only for this reason. I want you to have that as a, a resource in conversation when we talk about marriage law and why it should be one man, one woman, why it shouldn't be easy to get divorced. I actually love this because we can look across the world and say, this world you've been living in for 40 years in the West, it's super new. It's very white. It's very it's it's very neoliberal, new age. Most of the planet, for most of time, knew what we're just rejecting out of our own, I don't know, stupidity, out of our own arrogance or our own pride. We know that societies to be formed need men and women to marry, to procreate, and to raise their kids with the values of that people group. That's what we need to make any kind of progress, to have any kind of stability. And when that marriage happens, we we cannot have 50-year-old men decide to trade in for a younger a younger woman like we saw too much of like the mad men show from what a and e maybe amc years ago had a lot of that they just they showed it in the narrative but that was becoming a phenomenon you married a woman when you're 20 you married her for 30 years you just divorce her at 50 because you met a younger woman that you're into no like we we want laws that say to that man nah and there's all there needs to be social penalty. There needs to be shame around that. We love our wives. And equally, the the shame around adultery that used to, the cultural shame around adultery that used to surround women and men who commit adultery, we need that. I'm not afraid to say it or ashamed to say it. Shame is powerful. Shame is good. We should have shame over wrong things. Leaving your wife, leaving your husband, abandoning your wedding vows is shameful. It's bad. And law should bind you. So much so that if you do abandon and you want to try to be with someone else or marry someone else, we make it impossible to do because marriage matters. And just because we have lived in insanity for 40 or 50 years, we can look across the world and go, you know, there's probably more more people on the planet living with the traditional view of marriage than your view. Your view of this little love story that means nothing and you walk away when you stop feeling love, this is a shallow, just thin as can be, modern, dumb idea of marriage where thousands of years, including multiple billion people on the planet right now, live under legal, the word regime sounds negative now, but not supposed to most of the time, legal regimes that enforce marriage. It's that important. It was that vital. All right. Those are things happening around the world, and I just wanted you to know that so you have some 
not ammunition, but some, some content. Just talk about why it's so important. Uh, I told you last week, also, I wanted to get to something from Aiden, who sent in a resource. That's the last thing I will give you. Uh, especially young, not young people, but you people who pastor churches and are doing youth work. Uh, there is uh, the website forgingbonds.org, forgingbonds.org. There's a resource there uh, called, I think it's called Our Daughters and the Transgender Craze. There's a resource there that I looked into as much as I could. It does look effective. Um, we, we should note that it is, the transgender craze is vast majority female. I, I never went through female puberty, so I don't know the feeling, but I suspect that female puberty is even... Um, is a much more profound thing than male puberty. There's much, much more going on there with the, with the female growth process. And I suspect that it's uncomfortable. And girls feel like this is not natural, and they hate it. And then they get on TikTok, and someone says, "Well, you don't have to. You don't have to be a woman. You can do something else." There's some good resources on how to, how to address that. Maybe do some preventative work and fixing our minds towards the, the reality. Being a woman is good. It's awesome. Being a man is good. It's awesome. There's no, 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 it's not only not, it's not only impossible to change. You don't need to. It's what our kids need to hear in a world that's trying to make them crazy with transgenderism. To tell them being a boy is good. Being a girl is good. We want you to be a, want you to be a boy or a girl. All right, that's all I got. Uh, I'll be back with another new edition. Well, actually, let me let me close this way. Your thoughts, feedback, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com for any feedback. Also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or threads. You can message me there. And I, yep, that's it. Check the show notes for any kind of links that I have or questions or polls we leave on the show. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.